episode 412, this is Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to continue our tour of the packages that get installed by default on Slackware Linux. As usual, if you're not running Slackware Linux, you can still benefit from this information because all of the packages that I'm talking about are open source, so you can go and install them on your Linux distribution. And even if you're not running Linux, you can probably install it. In this episode, we're we're in the we're still in the D as in developer series of Slackware, and we are picking up where we left off more or less with GCC-Go. Now, before I start with GCC-Go, I want to acknowledge that I kind of skimmed over G4Tran. I mean, to be fair, we kind of skimmed over that, although. Also, to be fair, there was only one binary there, so it wasn't there wasn't that much to look at, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, just one binary. Uh, GNAT was a little bit different. There was a lot that that's the Ada command. There were a lot of commands in GNAT that I didn't really talk about. It starts out with GNAT and then GNAT bind, GNAT G GNAT chop, GNAT clean, and so on. So there there were some commands that we just didn't look at and. I thought about trying to sort of continue on with those commands in this episode, just just to be sure that we literally get through every single binary. But uh, it, it's worth noting that the binaries here listed in the GNAT package are all of the there there those are the sub commands for the GNAT command, and I didn't go through all of them. Uh, I just did the simple hello world um, for Ada, and and I'm I'm thinking that if I had Certainly, if I had more expertise, any expertise, in the Ada language, I could speak about all of those different subcommands. But having gotten through a Hello World with Ada, I think that's probably fair enough, and get, gives a good idea of, of what GNAT is sort of capable of. And certainly, if you choose to explore Ada further, then you'll probably learn about all of those subcommands yourself, and you'll enjoy that learning experience, and you'll still thank me and think of me fondly, because I'm the one, possibly, who told you about Ada in the first place. Before we get started, I want to review really quick some show notes that were contributed by a user named Linuxoid on Mastodon.ml. Their username is Linuxoid, their display name is something in Cyrillic, and I'm not fluent in Cyrillic, unfortunately, so I cannot pronounce what the display name says. The username, though, is at Linuxoid at Mastodon.ml. And they have contributed some show notes, which I thought for 398, for episode 398, which I thought were actually really, really helpful because it summed up the process of converting code that one writes into an executable. And it sums it up in a way I think that's, well, clearer than anything else, than anything I'd stated maybe, or, or maybe not. I, I haven't listened to the episode lately, but here's, here's what they've written. The detailed process of transforming C code, and of course, in this context, we can extrapolate and say, well, it's any code, really. Now that we have all of these GCCs available to us, what's happening is that we're transforming source code to a binary executable module for your operating system. Consists of four steps, um, utilities, and five files on disk. So the five files are, uh, for instance, hello.c. That's the source code with macros. Of course, it could be hello.java, it could be hello.ada, or whatever the um, ADB, I think, was the ADA extension. It could be hello.go, whatever. Hello.i, which is a text file with expanded macros, but it's still the source code. Hello.s, 
which is a text file in assembly, and then hello.o, which is a binary object code with instructions to the processor, but offsets here are not tied to memory areas relative to other object files and libraries. And then hello. A binary executable file with all, object, uh, all objects inside, maybe static libraries, ready for execution with a loading of linked dynamic libraries, that is .so files, in your OS, uh, your distribution. The four steps of compiling are, you get your, your, your code, so that's when you're dealing with your .c or your .go or your .adb or whatever, which is pre-processing with, in this case, cpp, which produces a .i file. And then you have your .i file, this is step two, you take your .i file, you translate it with gcc into a .s file, and then your .s file gets assembled into a .o file, and then your .o file gets linked with LD into the thing that you want to run, the binary executable. Wow, what a great explanation. When I read these on Mastodon, because Linuxoid sort of copied me or whatever you say, you know, included me or added me or whatever it is, and I I, I read them and I, I thought, I, I for a moment I thought that Linuxoid was clarifying for me maybe something that I'd gotten wrong or something, because it was so clear and lucid. I just thought, wow, this is, this is such a great explanation of what, of what we've been going over with GCC. So I wanted to make sure that that got in, and, and, and I've preserved them in the actual show notes now of episode 398. So if you go to gnuworldorder.info slash um, hash... 398, you can see the show notes with these included in the, sh- added to the show notes now. So it is, it's, it's a good e- explanation of, of what we have been experiencing for the past couple of episodes here, uh, within the D for development series. Let's get going with Go. Go is a general purpose programming language. Um, it is a compiled, garbage collected, concurrent programming language developed by Google. Its development, or rather its design, was started apparently uh, back in 2007 by Rob... I'm going to get this name, the pronunciation wrong. Robert Gresmer, who um, you may not have heard of before, but he did work on Java Hotspot, which is uh, one of the virtual machine implementations for Java. Rob Pike, you may or may not recognize that name. He was a... Uh, Bell Labs guy worked a little bit on Plan 9, and what was his other project? Something... Oh, yeah, he did, like, the first windowing system for Unix back in 1981, apparently. And then, of course, Ken Thompson, who, of course, co-invented Unix with Dennis Ritchie. So, it's got a pretty good pedigree, and you may or may not love its point of origin, that it's being... uh, that it was sort of created under the auspices of of Google employment but in terms of the designers i think it's kind of difficult to to complain about that level of expertise all sitting in the same room working to build something together and it is funny cuz for a very long time i think as you are learning programming i mean we're all learning pro- well anyone who is learning programming is always learning programming probably there's i'm sure there's some argument for that but, like, when you're very first starting out and sort of wrapping your mind around how it all works, I don't feel like you really think about, or at least I didn't think about, the design ste- step of, of, you know, how does this language come to exist? I think I always just thought that it was kind of a natural, this was just part of designing 
a computer. Like, computers work because these languages exist. But really, that's not true, as we've seen with the, the translation of a programming language into into assembly and then down into machine code. The, the languages are forms of expression. They are, they are how, we, how we abstract the, the really basic kind of electrical, electrical engineering side of, of, of how computers get signals and, and get instructions. We abstract that away into human recognizable programming languages, which just someone has to do. So some, somebody gets to come up with the syntax that you're going to use and the words that you're going to use. And we've seen how that happens with, with Yak and, and Flex. Not not yak bison and flex. So it is it is something that that once you I think get your head around just the idea of oh cool I can tell my computer exactly what I want it to do. Sometimes sometimes so much so that it's painful. For instance, having to manage memory space and garbage collection yourself like that that could be that can be tough. And so then you 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 discover that that's not so much what you're really interested in after all and and you'd you'd rather use this other programming language that doesn't make you worry about that but you don't want to go too far where you don't have to worry about anything because then you start to get yourself into trouble and things start to break but you don't understand why because you never bothered learning about data types or or something like that so you know you find your balance and you you maybe sort of start to realize that there are humans just like you and me behind all of these decisions and and it's possible to not agree or or maybe not enjoy some of the decisions that those humans have made you know and i mean i guess i kind of got an inkling of that at the at the big at the great crossover between python 2 and python 3 when i had an irrational hope that curly braces would become optional methods of scoping so that if you really really hated the white space you could not make that a thing for yourself and that never happened and I don't know why I ever thought it would happen I just I think it's a, a thing that I invented for myself and when it didn't happen I I, I, I kind of realized like there, there are people writing up proposals and requests for comments and things like that and peps and and all of these other things and and then people make a decision about it and it and it it happens or it doesn't happen or some something happens, uh, and then the same thing I think went with Perl five and Perl six. the The transition from Perl five to Perl six went so so poorly that I guess the I don't know if it's the story now or if it's the clarification now. I'm not really clear, but whatever the whatever the intent was, Perl six is no longer called Perl six. And just for historical, as a historical note, Perl 6 used to be called Perl 6. It is now called Raku, R-A-K-U. And it is considered a sister language to Perl, but it is not Perl itself. But just to be clear, historically, that was not the case. When Perl 6 came out, to my memory, it was the, it was the next stage of the Perl language. That was, it was going to replace Perl 5, and you, everyone is going to be using Perl 6, just like Python 3 replaced Python 2. But later, it, it became apparent that, that apparently Perl 6 was not intended to replace Perl 5, and that it was meant to go on in parallel with Perl 5 or something. And, and now it's a completely different thing entirely, apparently. So there there's a lot of confusion there. So what I'm trying to say, I guess is that, I guess, the longer you hang around in the programming world, you start to see 
that these are these are constructs these languages are constructed by people who have opinions on how things should go and and what makes programming easier for for them and for whatever subset of of programmers that they are hanging out with or interfacing with and and it kind of highlights the question of well how do you choose your programming language like what are the requirements when you choose what language you are going to use what 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 is your long-term vision for how long you know you're entering essentially you're entering into a relationship with a programming language when you choose to use it i feel like that's an intermediate programming concern like i wouldn't tell a person who is just starting out to program uh, you, you you should be careful of what program programming language you start out with because once you start with it you know you'll have to you'll have to deal with that for the rest of your life or something like that i mean that's you know choosing your programming language to start with i think is similar to choosing your linux distribution use the one that makes it easy for you like whatever seems to be working for you go down that path because the more success you have of course the 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 more, success breeds more success very frequently and so if if you are having success after success with 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 this language then choose this language to continue with and then if you want to branch out later do so willingly and with a willingness to to learn something different and see see if there's something else out there for you that you might prefer and that certainly has happened with me as i continue to learn more about programming languages and I bring this up because Go made quite the impression on a de on some developer communities. I I certainly when I heard about Go, it it was for a very long time with um, a lot of excitement. I'm not going to say it was with passion because I don't feel like anybody really knew enough about it yet to be passionate about it. But I would remember I remembered back at an old job that I had, um, there would be, you know, a group of it would be the the meeting, the the weekly meeting for the department, uh, for the R and D department, and and there'd be a all the programmers sitting in the room and someone would announce, okay, we're gonna we're gonna start this new project for such and such and it's going to be written in Go. And everyone in the room sort of voiced approval, which was weird to me because you don't, I don't feel like you normally voice approval on something that you're not part of, you know, you're not on that team. You're, you, it's not like you're going to be writing in Go. It's just you've heard that, that someone else is going to be writing in Go and you voice approval for that. So I feel like Go sort of from the, from a very early stage had sort of a reputation of being a very, a well-designed programming language, something that kept a couple of different principles in mind. And one of those principles, at least now, is a modular um, structure. And I, I say structure because I, I don't want to say modular design, but it is um, something that that has um, that 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 has. I guess a, a certain way of building your code from the start, which I do feel is rather important because you see things like Python and Java going to a very, um, well, a module slash library centric construction. And I mean, maybe they've always been doing that, but they, they, they'll, they've made, they've both made changes recently that kind of really push people into the direction of well you're not just writing a script here you're you're writing 
you are writing a library, and then you're invoking that library from some main class or or a main function of some sort, and that's that's your program. Your program is the function that calls your the libraries that you've written. And the reason I call that out is because I feel like for a while that wasn't super clear, at least with Python. I don't have the history with Java that I do with Python. I mean, I don't have that much of a history with Python either, don't don't get me wrong. But um, I do remember when reading up on, you know, when learning Python early on, the the frequent assumption was that you were, you're writing a single document that is your Python code, and that's it. It took me forever to learn how to even include Python from Python code from one file into another. Like the idea of writing a Python application that consisted of more than one file for me for a very long time was utterly confusing and mystifying because nobody in the beginner lessons really explained it. And and I don't blame them. It's a difficult concept to to impart, especially for a, a new a new programmer like how do you explain to someone when they're still grappling with the idea that words that they type into a, a text document what is a text document yeah, well it's something that you create with a text editor what is a text editor is that like a word process you know it's there are so many new things involved when creating when, when you sit down to learn programming that you the last thing you want to do is dim, is try to tell someone okay well the first step you're going to do is make, you know, an empty file, underscore, underscore, init, underscore, or in underscore, in, uh, dot pi, or whatever it is in, in Python, or, or, or go dot mod, or whatever it is. It, it just makes no, no logical sense. Um, I mean, it, it, I'm sure, you know, I have faith in the education process that it can, it can be made to make sense. But generally speaking, that is not how programming has been taught and even the hello world applications that you find online they're not made for as if though it's a a module a package a library it's always a single statement in a single file that you then compile and run or that you don't even have to compile and run and it's just all magical well not so much with go as of version i think 1.10ish or something and I think we're on like I don't know let's just say 1.4 right now I'm not sure um but but relatively recently I guess go has kind of made the the intent of modular programming or modular code bases kind of front and center and it's kind of refreshing the, the problem here is though that the version of go that sh- that slackware ships with is not that it, it it's earlier than that revolution. So, for instance, if I do um, user, well, first of all, I'll look in varlog packages gcc dash go dash whatever, and I see that I've got four things to cover. I've got gcc go. It's all one string. Gcc go. I have go go format or gofmt g o f m t and then something called x86 underscore 64 dash slackware slash dash linux dash gcc go all all one string and i believe all of those things actually truly exist which seems a little bit strange ls dash l user bin what was it x x86 yeah so weird x86 64 dash slackware dash gcc dash go yeah that's an actual executable 
separate from GCC Go. Um, same size though. Makes me makes me wonder. But anyway, um, those are the binaries we have to cover. So if I do a slash user slash bin slash go dash dash version, do I have to do the dash dash or just type in version? I forget. Just just version would have worked actually. It says to me that actually it has to be version. Okay. It says to me that I'm running go 1.4.2 and I happen to know that the it, it's kind of silly to talk about go 1.4 to be honest because nobody's using 1.4. Um and so quite some time ago now I'd installed from the go website and and I got to say I'm not a huge fan of how Google delivers a lot of the stuff that they deliver. They deliver a lot of the stuff with the the sort of just a download it and and install it yourself kind of like you know as binary formats but 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 it's just a yeah it's not packaged for anything it, it's kind of annoying so anyway i installed go separately and you can install go separately from gcc go so i'm going to be running my go demo the the code itself from Go 1.13, which in itself is not super recent, to be honest, but that's what I installed, and I'm not going to bother installing something more up-to-date right now, because I don't need to. It's slash user slash lib64 slash go 1.13.10 slash go slash bin slash go. That's, if I type in which go, that's that's what it considers go. I don't know offhand how that's getting decided, but that's that's where it thinks go is. And that's fine, it will still work with GCC go, it's just that the features of the language are different than the features of the of, of the language in 1.4. I mean, I, I should I should say this simple demonstration will work with GCC Go. I can't guarantee that an old GCC Go built around 1.4 will work once you start throwing very new concepts at it. I don't know, but for a Hello World application, which is all I'm doing here, it it works fine. Okay, so what we're gonna do is the first uh, command. Well, f first I'm going to make a project directory. That's easy. So make directory, I'll just call it goder, and then I'll go into goder, and I'm going to do go mod init, and I need to give this a, a sort of a, a package name, although obviously go calls them modules, go, go mod init, so it's a module related thing. So go mod init, and I'm just going to do, uh, let's do example.com slash hello. And this produces a file called go.mod. And if I cat go.mod, I see that it says module example.com slash hello, and then go 1.13. That's not any, that's not information that I need to do anything with. I don't need to add to it. I could ob obviously generated that myself, but go has that kind of built in, which I really quite like. Um, I do wish other programming languages would kind of have that built in as well, that kind of, here's your boilerplate text. Like, that's such a huge, huge thing, I think, because boilerplate text, it's just so hard to remember half the time, and even if, if you're doing it every day, it's kind of a pain to keep writing out. I think, to be fair, that's what a good IDE delivers for you, you know? Like, there's a lot of Java boilerplate text that I don't write because NetBeans does it for me that sort of thing. So it's it's kind of nice. Um, and now we'll create our little hello.go application, which uh, in terms of sort of, I don't know, getting things started, I do like how simple this is. So the first line is um, package space main. It's not too bad. And then we're going to import 
the function fmt. So import space quote fmt close quote. So package space main and then a new line import quote fmt close quote. I'll put a blank line between those just to keep it neat. And then um, a new blank line and func f-u-n-c. I don't know why programming languages can't just decide among themselves of how we're going to do functions. I think the word function actually makes a lot of sense. I think that would be a, a really good sort of keyword for that. I mean, at least func isn't def. That's that's nice. It's f-u-n-c. So that, that gets you close to wh what you're actually doing. But whatever, func f-u-n-c, space main, parentheses, parentheses, open a brace, curly brace, whatever. And then I'm going to go to the next line, and I'm going to intentionally, even if my editor tries to force me to put a tab there, or an indent, or whatever, I'm not going to. And we'll, we'll just remember that I said that. fmt.println, so obviously I'm using printline from the format library. So fmt.println, with a capital P, so print ln. And then parentheses, quote, hello, clatu, close, quote, close, parentheses. And then next line I'm going to do close curly brace. That's it. That's my hello world in Go. I'll save that. And I'm going to test it with the Go binary that I know is good, which is the one that I downloaded from the website. So this is not the Go binary from GCC package. So go.slash.hello.go. It says it's an unknown command. That is really interesting. Maybe I'm doing that command wrong. I am. I do go run dot. Go space run space dot. So I get hello world, or uh, hello Klaatu rather, back on the command line. And it's got a built-in little new line character, and that's nice. So you notice that go dot slash hello dot go didn't seem to understand what I wanted to do. Which seems weird, right? I mean, like, you know, it's Go. Run the script that, that I wrote in Go. Like, how could that not be a thing? Well, this is the this is a, a little nod to that Go module um, structure that's happening here. And this is nice because I don't know if you've ever seen um, an application. Like, I mean, Python especially, and they, they might have gotten better at this now. But for a while, there was this real kind of awkward stage... Which, I mean, I think is totally, I feel like, structurally, it's very normal. But for Python, it felt very surprising. What would happen is that you would download a Python application, maybe, and you would you would run whatever Python file there was in the, in the directory that you used, and it would, it would start to fire up, and then it would fail because it couldn't find, I don't know, app.py, or gui.py, or or, you know, window.py, whatever. And so you do investigation, you realize that that was a, a class that, or a module or whatever they call it in Python, that, that, that's included in this, in this bundle of code that you just downloaded. But because the Python thing that you were running didn't know, it, it, it thought that everything should be located in slash user slash lib64 slash Python 3.8 slash, um, site packages slash whatever um so it didn't it doesn't know where that module is and it's kind of frustrating because it's like well it's right it's right there in the in the directory called you know source or 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 you know code or whatever it's right there it's like right next to you why can't you find it uh and y there's just no way really to sort of tell it 
where that stuff is. And then you would see some applications um, that would try to... I remember um, there's a video editor that I'm just blanking on right now. Um, and it, it, it did this. You could You could actually run it out of the current directory because it would do a check in that main file that you would run whether it was running from an install or whether it was running from a local directory. And I quite liked that and emulated that a lot in the stuff that I would do for myself because I just like the idea that that since since it is all self-contained, then it is Python, and it's supposed to just be a, a, essentially a, a fancy scripting language. And, and I know that's that's an arguable statement, but I mean that's kind of how it presented itself for a very, very long time, that it should be able to just kind of run out of a, a bundle. It, you know, this isn't something that you're you're meant to have to compile with pointers to the dash i for includes and dash l for libraries. This is just this is just Python. So it, it there was this little awkwardness for a while and I, and I haven't looked into that lately, so I don't know if it's still a thing where where yeah, you had to install it to your system in order for it to kind of find all of its own components. Whereas go because it is there's a go module and there there are that there's stuff here that you can define and you can say well this this is everything that is required for this go module to run you can just do go space run space dot and get different results than than certainly it might you know if if it's if there's no awareness of all of the files that it that it requires to to be run so that's a nice feature and let's see what happens if we run this with user bin go let's just see what happens there uh go run dot no files listed it doesn't know how to how to do that from this old version of go yep doesn't doesn't know how to do that uh, i'm gonna do go help user bin go help and yeah it doesn't well no it says it, it does have a run command um let's do oh it doesn't know what the go module is so i'm gonna just go run hello dot go there we go and there's hello Clatu. all right so older Go is still working. That's good to see. So now let's try the actual compiler. So just to make sure that we're doing this with the correct compiler, we're going to do slash user slash bin gcc go, and then we will point it to hello.go and press return, and it seems to have worked. And so I'll now I'll do an a.out, because that's the default name, and it says hello cloud too, so I guess that must have worked. Uh, and now let's try it with that funky x86-64 Slackware Linux GCC Go and point it to Hello Go. And that seemed to work. And it, d it does dot slash a out. Uh, and if I, d I guess if I do a file a dot out, let's see what it says. It says it's an L64 LSB executable, dynamically linked, interpreter is... Uh, located in lib64. Okay, so that's that. And then I'm going to try, I'm going to do the same thing with gcc go. File a out. I see no difference between what it's reporting. So I don't know the difference between gcc go and x86-64 dash slackware dash linux dash gcc go. Um, so functionally, I think we've just covered two things. gcc go and x86 underscore 64 dash slackware linux gcc go. Good for us. And technically, we've covered Go, so we're done there as well. The only thing left is Go FMT, Go Format. And is there a man page for that? Not really. Uh, but it the man page, the, the one-line man page practically, does say that Go Format formats Go code. So I'm going to do user bin Go FMT, and then I'll point it at hello.go. 
I'm in the wrong directory. What terminal am I in right now? Okay, here we go. User bin go format hello.go. And that spits out my code. And remember, I specifically said I wasn't indenting format.println parentheses quote hello clatu close quote close parentheses. Well, go format makes it look more or less pretty for me, and it indents format.println. Now, interestingly, it stops short of doing things like breaking lines up. So, for instance, if I go back into my code and I do func main parentheses parentheses curly brace. And then all on the same line, format.println, hello, clatu, and then in curly brace. And so now I've literally got three lines. I've got package main, import format, and then the whole function on one line. And if I do user bin format, go format, hello.go, that makes it a little bit prettier. It says package main, blank line for, for white space, import format, blank line to give a little white space, and then the whole function on one line. So I'm not sure what sort of its requirements are for, you know, what its definition of pretty code is. It, it certainly isn't, I don't know, I, I don't know what that is. So, uh, I mean, not that I'm complaining, I, I don't I don't quite understand necessarily the point of this, what if I just did like the curly brace at the tail end, would it, would it break that off? Yes, apparently, so if I put just a sort of a trailing curly brace at the end of the function, kind of awkwardly, then go format does break that curly brace off and move it to down to the next line. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what its requirements are, or even what its purpose is. I, I'm honestly not too sure why it exists, but it does exist, and that's what it does. It formats go code. Okay, let's take a coffee break, then we'll come back and talk more about GCC. coffee. At least I have coffee. I assume you've got coffee. There are yet more features of Go that I want to highlight because uh, I think, again, just design-wise, I think this is, at, at, if nothing else, this is an interesting study. So we can use other modules within our module, and one of those modules, probably designed for demonstration purposes, is called quote. And so if we go into my code here, we got package main, import format. Let's also import uh, quote rsc.io slash quote, q-u-o-t-e, and then close the actual quote char character. I guess that's a little confusing actually, so just to spell it out, I guess uh, that would be import quote rsc.io slash q-u-o-t-e close quote. Next line is still going to be the main, so that's func main. And then format print line hello clatu, sure, I'll keep that in, but let's also do a format dot print line um, uh, parentheses is what this character is, sorry. Parentheses, and then the word quote q-u-o-t-e dot Go, capital G, parentheses, parentheses, and then close parentheses, and then close curly brace, of course, because that's the end of the function. And now I could go 
since this is about GCC Go, I guess I'll do user bin GCC Go. Uh, and what is the path? Oh yeah, hello.go. And this is where we're starting to fall down. So GCC Go says, error, import file rsc.io quote, not found. Import rsc. Yeah, it indicates where the where the errors are in the in the code. There's an error in the sense that import rsc.io quote doesn't exist or isn't found, and then it indicates that when we try to use that quote.go, it, it doesn't know that's an undefined name quote. There's no reference to that. So if we use our modern implementation of Go, and I just type run or, or go space run space dot. That tells me that it's finding rsc.io quote version 1.52. It's extracting it, it's downloading, extracting, downloading, extracting, finding, finding, and then it spits out the results. Hello, Klaatu, don't communicate by sharing memory, share memory by communicating. That's the quote that we just got. Uh, if I do go run dot again, it just spits that out. Hello, Klaatu, don't communicate by doing the things. So, in other words, it has... Um, it has added to to the code the the things that it needs to to add in order to work. And in fact, if I do a cat go.mod, you remember that one file that we created at the very beginning, go mod init example.com slash hello. Now if I cat that go.mod, there's a new line here. It used to just be, if you'll recall, module example.com slash hello, go 1.13. And I said, uh, we don't need to really worry about that. Well, we still don't need to worry about that because go is managing it. And at the bottom of this file now, there's a line that says require rsc.io slash quote v1.5.2. So it is managing the dependencies of this project and ensuring that it's got access to the 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 the, the modules that it that it needs and and knows where to find it and so on. So that is pretty interesting, I think you'll agree, uh, for it to just kind of handle all of that for you. And I mean, even if you know, if I'm thinking of like Lua, then you would probably you you could sort of do that with Lua rocks. And if you're using Java, then again, your IDE can kind of handle a lot of that. Sometimes, I mean, it kind of depends on your IDE, and you might have to go in and add a package manually, sort of external, add external jar, that sort of thing. Uh, it kind of just depends on what you're using and and what kind of conventions it it's following. But this this Go thing where it's just kind of all automated and and pretty darn intelligent, um, and it kind of wraps up that whole. You know, it's essentially wrapping up the the pip or the Lua rocks or I guess Maven, all of these um, these tools that we have to to find and manage and catalog. Well, I guess catalog, find, and then manage dependencies. Go just kind of has that built in at this point. Now, obviously, GCC Go does not and whether that matters or not i i don't know like you know your use case is going to vary um and, and certainly if i updated gcc go i might find that there are there are added niceties that that are missing from the version that shipped or i guess it didn't actually ship with slackware because i'm actually using the alien bob version of this so this is the later edition no th sorry this is just a multi-ver multi-lib edition so it's it's I, I don't think it is actually later than what slackware shipped with um either way this is obviously not handling some of the newer features of of go and and what it's trying to provide for its users but certainly if you're just using go the latest release and stuff then there are a lot of 
interesting features that I don't I don't really see in other programming languages necessarily. Not not that I'm familiar with all of the languages out there, so maybe maybe this is maybe this is found elsewhere. Um, maybe Node has something like this. I don't know. Um, but I thought that was kind of an interesting way of handling that sort of thing on Go's part. And I think that's all I have to say about Go. We've 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 covered all the binaries, so I can at least say that I've done the bare minimum for that set. Let's take a look at GCC-Java now. This one comes with a lot more executables than the Go version did. And, I mean, once again, I, I don't know exactly how how useful this is necessarily in, in an actual kind of workflow sense. Because if you're using Java, there's a high likelihood that you go to adoptopenjdk.net and you're installing the package that they provide there, and that's how you're getting Java. That's the that's the process that you're using, or or whatever Java uh, repository you use. I I happen to like adoptopenjdk.net because it seems to provide everything that you need in a pretty explicit and obvious manner. It kind of tells you, hey, th this is the the LTS release, this is the JVM that you could be using, here are the different platforms or the different uh, package formats that you can get it in. So I, I quite like Adopt OpenJDK, but there are other places too, there's, um, what is it, not not Azul, yeah, Azul, um, azul.com slash download slash Zulu, that's the word I was thinking of, Zulu-community, they have um, Java binaries as well, or packages. So you can get it wherever you you get it, but th there is a likelihood that you have gotten your Java kit from something other than you know GCC-Java or whatever it is. But let's take a look at, at what this could do for you, because it is there's some interesting stuff here. So first of all, rather than going in order as listed in the package, I'm going to cut more or less straight to the chase and look at GCJ. That is the GCC-Java, that's the true deliverable here, GCJ. Um, is there a man page for that? I forget. Man, GCJ. Yeah. It says, ahead of time compiler for the Java language. That's GCJ. And it, again, gives kind of the standard line at the top as GCJ is just another front end to GCC, although it is, of course, its own executable. It supports many of the same options as GCC. This manual only documents options specific to GCJ. It says that there are different input and output files. Um, GCJ command is like a GCC command in that it consists of a number of options and file names. Uh, the following kinds of input file names are supported. File.java, file.class, that's for Java byte code files, file.zip, file.jar, an archive containing one or more class files, all of which are compiled. The archive may be compressed. Files in an archive which don't end with .class are treated as resource files. They are compiled into the resulting object file as core URLs, and so on. So there's, there's a bunch of different kinds of files that you can throw at this thing, depending on what your goal is. And there are a couple of things that we need to know um, because otherwise it won't work. And that thing is, I guess, hmm, where to start? So the first thing is that your Java source code is going to probably be written in a file called something.java. So in this case, let's do, for instance, a hello.java. And keeping it very, very simple here, just doing this in a text editor without the IDE to support me and put 
all the boilerplate code at the top and such because I don't know exactly how, I don't know why I would be interfacing with GCJ from inside of an IDE personally. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of very good reasons. I'm just trying to imagine a scenario where I would be doing that. Um, so again, workflow, workflow I'm not super clear about, but let's, we'll get to the, to the benefit. So, uh, class space, hello world. That's what I'm going to call it. Curly brace, public static main, uh, void main, sorry, public static void main, parentheses string, capital S, square bracket, square bracket, and I completely misspelled string. It's with an I this time. Okay, A-R-G-S, args, close parentheses, open a curly brace, and then the next line will just do the, the predictable system.out.println, parentheses, hello, let's do java world, close quote, close parenthesis, and then a semicolon to close that line out, and then close the curly brace, so we're closing out the function, main function, and then another curly brace to close out, I'm going to notate that here, close function, well, close main, and then another curly brace to slash slash uh, close class. Now we know where everything is there. So now we have this Java file. And strictly speaking, Java usually likes to be run out of a jar. It, it, it wants to be sort of compiled into bytecode things. And so you're not really supposed to run, you don't usually expect to run a Java file as sort of a script as you would Bash or Python or anything like that. So in theory, you could do java.hello.java and wait for it return. Oh, and we get an error. So it says error class found on application class path. Hello world. So what it's telling me here is that it doesn't know where to start. There are many languages that require and expect your main component, the main component of your application, of your code, to be called main, M-A-I-N. So in this case, I'm going to copy my hello world hello.java to test dot java and then i'm going to open up test.java in emacs and change the name of my class to main so class main public static void main and so on all right so now if i do java.test.java it quickly in the background compiles java the way that it needs to be compiled in order to run and and outputs exactly what i would expect which is the strings hello Java world. So that worked. Um, and that's kind of the, kind of almost the Go-alike rendition of this workflow, of this imaginary sort of minimal workflow with Java. Realistically, though, that's probably not how you're going to deliver your Java application. More often than not, the way that you are going to deliver Java is in a jar file. And the jar, as the, as the man page indicated, the jar would be filled with compiled like bytecode class files and so those jar files would would be speaking to whatever java runtime or java virtual machine really installed on the target operating system or, or rather the the user's operating system so that's more often than not the expectation. So a jar file, like if I look at uh, ls tilde slash bin for me, and then fop, f-o-p. Fop is an Apache project. It, it does formatting output for, for X, uh, XML. It, it converts XML to 
format objects or whatever they're called, FO, I forget what that stands for, um, and I use it a lot with DocBook. It happens to be a Java application, and if I go into slash fop in this directory and then slash maybe build, yep, build fop.jar. So there's this jar file here, and that's not, that's not usually how I launch it. I launch it just by typing in fop, and as it turns out, if I don't go into the build directory, there's a shell script here called fop, and it probes the system, figures out where everything is, like, okay, what Java are you running, where is it all located, and so on, figures all that stuff out, and then it, it invokes, depending on what it's learned about my system, it invokes the fop jar with whatever kinds of options are required to make it run. And it looks like that's something like fop exec command equals exec java command, which I think is, yeah, would be just java, log choice log level dash class path to the local class path, which has been defined by the script, fop opts, which again have been defined here probably, org.apache.fop.cli.main, fop exec args. So lots of sort of back-end things are happening there to make that to make that all function correctly and if i do for instance a file on fop slash build fop dot jar which is the the jar file that's actually being executed i get that it is a java archive it's java archive data it's a jar file that's what that is um now i could I could unjar this and look at the files that it contains, like I could do that right now, make directory fop, go into that directory, jar xvf, and then the path to this fop jar, tilde bin fop 2.5, blah blah blah. It inflates all of that stuff for me. I get a meta inf directory, and then I've got a org directory in which there's an Apache directory, in which case in which there is a fop directory. And then inside of that, there's a bunch of other stuff. Fonts, events, FO, servlet, text, tools. Let's look in tools. Uh, ant tasks. And and in the end, so here's a file compare.class, for instance. Let's get a file name on that. It says it's a compiled Java class data. Version 51.0, Java 1.7. So that, again, that is a, a compiled class object of, of, of a Java um, source code. Okay, why am I going over all of this? Do we really care? Do we need to know any of this? Um, maybe. Let's now look at GCC. So GCC, or GCJ rather, GCJ, I'm gonna do GCJ hello.java. Wait for it. And there's an error. It says that the error is uh, in function underscore start, undefined reference to main, collect to error ld returned one exit status okay well there's that main thing again so we could try to maybe say okay well let's do gcj hello dot or let's do our test.java which remember defined the class as main so test.java no still an error so our our little hack around this didn't work in for for gcj so what do we do well so it turns out we just need to tell GCJ what we want our main class to be to, to be seen as. And in this case, let's do hello world. Actually, let me clear out some of these these junk files, including the test.java. We'll just get rid of that. Okay, so now all I've got is the hello.java. So we'll do GCJ space dash dash main equals hello world, and, and I'm saying hello world because I happen to remember that in hello jar, I gave my class name the name hello world. 
So that's where we're pointing it. We're saying when you're looking for main, look at hello world. And then we're pointing it at hello.java, which is of course our source, our, our source code. And that does not give me an error. If I do an ls, I now have a file called a.out. And if I execute a.out, I get hello java world in, in, out in my terminal. So now interestingly, let's do a file of a.out. And maybe I should give you a couple of seconds, so you can consider this your couple of seconds, to try to guess what kind of file this has produced. Do you think it's going to be a compiled class path, uh, a, a compiled bytecode class, Java class? Do you think it's going to be a jar? Do you think it's going to be um, a uh, an elf binary? Well, let's find out. File a.out is an elf executable. Yep, so it has compiled the Java source code down to an elf binary. So you're not looking at bytecode Java Java bytecode class object whatever they call them. You're not looking at a jar. You're not looking at source code that's going to be compiled just in time and spit back out into your terminal. It is this is an elf executable, meaning that like this is this is now compatible with or without Java. Like this is a this is an executable that you can send to other people. Let's do an LDD on aw uh, a dot out. Uh, we've got Linux VDSO, libgcc, libgcj, uh, libm, libpthread, librt, libdl, libc, libz, ldlinux, x6464, no, x8664. So there's no link here to, like, adopt OpenJDK. There's nothing... I mean, yes, there's libgcj, so that's probably significant. But in terms of sort of telling people, hey, you, you'll need to install Java on your system, that's not what you're getting here. You're getting an elf binary. It's not stripped, of course, so let's just do a quick look here. It is 18 kilobytes. Can we get that down smaller? Let's strip a.out, do an lslh again, and we got it down to 11 kilobytes for the a.out. And that's a binary that's been produced with GCJ, and that's what it does. Okay, so GCJ compiles things down to elf that's pretty exciting. That that could be potentially a big deal for a Java programmer. And because we're running out of time, let's just real quick like get through some of uh, some of these binaries that come with GCJ. I mean, again, GCJ is the the big one. So just like GNAT, GCJ. That's that's what I wanted to highlight here. Um, but there are some others. There's AOT compile. So let's do AOT compile. Well, let's do a man for for that first. And it says it compiles bytecode to a native, oh, compile bytecode to native and generate databases. And so it's saying that AOT compile is a script that searches a directory for Java bytecode as class files or in jars and uses GCJ to compile it to native code and generate the databases from it. Sounds actually pretty exciting. So let's do, um, let's see, how should we do this? Let's, I'm going to do a copy-rv uh, from my, binary, my, my bin directory fop-2.5 slash fop uh, build fop.jar and actually I don't need, need to do the rv so I'm just copying that to my current directory maybe I'll make a new directory called test and I'll move fop.jar into test there we go alright so now we're here I'm gonna do aot-compile-help just to make sure I get the syntax correct aot-compile a bunch of options don't think I really need that. It looks like all the defaults listed here seem pretty reasonable to me. 
So then the source directory and the destination directory. Well, is the source directory um, a dot for this directory? Well, anyway, okay, I'm going to make a new folder called build, and then I'll, I'll do AOT compile space dot space build, as if to suggest that it should search this directory for a jar and turn the jar into something and dump it into build. And then it, it uh, it's executing gcj, dash c dash f pick dash f indirect dash dispatch dash f j and i fop dot jar dot one dot jar dash o fop dot jar dot one dot o and now i'll change into the build directory and it looks like i have a fop dot jar dot db and a fop dot jar dot so and if i do a file on uh, fop dot jar dot so i get that it's an elf 64-bit lsb shared object dynamically linked with debug info not stripped so that's just kind of that's i've turned in a, a jar into a dot so file and that was with aot compile all right ecj is next in line and it is a compiler as well it is the Eclipse Java compiler. Eclipse compiler for Java bundled qualifier 3.9.0. So this is another compiler. It, it compiles stuff. It's from the Eclipse Foundation, which is a great great little foundation, great big foundation. It They offer the, the Eclipse IDE, which is quite nice. I haven't been using it lately. I've kind of switched over to NetBeans. Um, but uh, NetBe NetBeans being from the Apache Foundation, so it's, it's one or the other, I guess. Uh, they're, they're both fine. I used to use Eclipse more. Now I'm now I'm really enjoying NetBeans, so that's what I'm on. Um, but the Eclipse Java compiler on my system currently does not compile. It it simply cannot find the appropriate classes that it thinks it needs. And no matter how I define my class path, it doesn't seem to be able to resolve anything. Anyway, so I don't know. Um, I've kind of read. First of all, ECJ I should mention it's not actually a the, the, that file in user bin is not um, a binary. It is a shell script, a very simple shell script that simply ECJ, there it is, no? Cat ECJ, there we go. Um, it, it says class path equals user share Java ECJ.jar, so it's it's a jar file. Dollar sign bracket, uh, well, who cares? Dollar sign class path. Uh, Java org.eclipse.jdt.internal compiler batch main. So it is, um, it's, it's a jar file that's being called by Java on your system. Now if I do which Java, of course it points to my adopt open JDK bin Java, and I think that's probably what's happening is that it's, it, it isn't aware of its own environment. And I could probably spend more time trying to figure that out, I don't know, um, but I'm not going to because it doesn't really matter. GCJ is certainly good enough for my purposes. And uh, so far, I haven't even decided whether that's really what I'm interested in when using Java, because generally I, what I like about Java is its ability to be cross-platform. And if you compile something down into a, an ELF binary, then that you, you're, you're losing that, that, that advantage, really. Uh, you're gaining other things, of course, but yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that process. Next up is FastJar. FastJar is an implementation of Sun's jar utility that comes with JDK written entirely in C and runs in a fraction of the time while being feature compatible. So this, this builds a jar file. This is, the jar is really, it is, um, it's a tar for Java, is, is basically what it is. It's an archive format for jar, uh, for, for Java. 
But there's a structure to it, so it's not just a tar file. It's, I, I guess one might think of it sort of as the Slack build or, or the Slack package version of of a Java package. So you know, it, yes, it's an archive, and yes, you can throw stuff into it. But if there's not a certain specific structure and layout to it, then you then it won't do what you want it to do, which very likely is to execute as if though it was an application. So here's here's the super basic way to make that happen. So first of all, I'm going to make a directory called meta-inf. That's M-E-T-A, all capitals, dash, inf, I-N-F. I've not yet bothered to look up what that actually means. I've always kind of felt like it means meta-infinite or something like that, but it's probably more like meta-info. And right now, just to keep things a little bit more traditional, I think, I'm going to open up my hello.java file and name that class main again, capital M and then A-I-N. Because that, realistically, that's probably what you're going to be doing in real life. Uh, I think. I mean, not necessarily. You don't have to, but that's what we're going to go with right now. Then I'm going to create a file in meta-inf manifest.mf m-a-n-i-f-e-s-t dot m-f as in manifest. And this technically, I think, only needs one line, which is main-class colon main. So we're, we're saying main with a capital M dash class with a capital C colon space and then the word main, again, with a capital M. Now, if I'd left my class hello world, that's what that would be. I didn't, though. I just made it main, because I think that's more often than not what you're, what you're going to see in the real world. So we're just telling this, this file, which is in turn going to tell our jar, that when you get executed, look in all those class files, which we haven't generated, by, by the way, yet, Look in all those class files for a function called for a class called main, and that will contain a function with main string bracket bracket args, that sort of entry point into the application. Now jars don't want an elf binary. I mean, not again. You can put anything you want in a jar, but if you're expecting for people to be able to run it as a Java application. It doesn't want an elf binary, it wants um, bytecode compiled uh, class object. We can generate that generally, like outside of GCJ, with a program called Javac, Javac, J-A-V-A-C, which I, I'm pretty sure is just Java compiler. But for GCJ, we can do that as well, and we can do GCJ-C hello.java, I think that's it, yeah. And then it that renders a new file called main.class. Well, we have all the ingredients we need now. Main class, main.class and meta-inf that lists main as our main class. Um, those are the components for a jar. So let's do fast jar dash lowercase c to create a new jar file. My.jar. I mean, this, I'm, I'm, I, this is going to fail and this frustrates me because According to FastJar, it says FastJar, one of C, T, X, U, or V, and then some other optional options, and then a jar fi jar dash file, and then manifest dash file, and then dash capital C directory for the, if you want to change directory before continuing, and then the files to add to your jar. So according to its instructions, as far as I can tell, fastjar dash c lowercase create new archive, and then the jar file that I want to create, I, I'm assuming, so that would be my dot jar, and then 
the manifest file, which is meta inf manifest, and then the file that I want to add is main.class. So we don't need hello.java anymore. That's not something that we are going to need right now because we've got the main.class compiled. And hit return, and it fails. It says my jar, no such file or directory. So what I'm going to do is remove that. So now I've got fast jar c meta inf manifest.mf main class return and I get all of the data that I wanted except out to my terminal as unrecognizable characters. So anyway, eventually you can come up with, with one of two revelations. You can either do the command just fastjar-c to create a new jar file, meta-inf slash manifest, and then main.class, redirect to, for instance, my.jar, and that works. Or you could do the thing that they just forget to tell you, I guess, which is um, use fastjar-cvf, just like you would with tar, myjar, meta-inf manifest, main, uh, main class, do that, and that generates a my.jar file. It can be very confusing because the instructions, they, it doesn't specifically sort of, it, it indicates, you know, in the summary line where it's kind of giving you all the different options that are required or, or, or optional and so on, it kind of gives you yes, you can name your fat your your jar file here, but there's no way I guess in shorthand to indicate well you can only do that if you use the f command the f option during the command anyway we got there in the end and that is again fastjar dash cvf my dot jar or whatever you want and then your manifest file and your main class and then if I do java dash jar my dot jar I get back the string hello java world done so you've just made a jar file uh, from java source source files and and that's you know just one of the many beautiful things about java for me it's just you've got your your components you throw it into an archive and the thing runs and acts like an application it's it's it is just a really nice tidy way of packaging things up i think and that's really all the time we have so i should i should cut this episode short here but there are several other tools listed which may or may not be of interest. I mean, I'm going to be honest, there's some stuff in here that aren't, you know, that it just probably doesn't really warrant a deep dive into. And, and I think arguably even FastJar, I don't know how important that is to know about because you're going to get a jar command with other, you know, with, with, with distributions of Java. So if I do a which jar right now, it's not pointing to FastJar, it points to jar which is in adopt open JDK bin jar. And, and there are a bunch of other similar things, similar tools that, um, to be fair, it's just not something that necessarily needs to, needs to necessarily be used out of this, this GCC package. Uh, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see how far down this list of binaries we go. There's yet GCC objective C to go over. Uh, next time, so that will be vaguely interesting, and then we'll be out of the GCCs and into the GDB, and I'm not really sure how much there is to say about that, because I did an entire Hacker Public Radio episode about it, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. But that has been GCC Go and GCC Java, or at least part of GCC-Java. Hope you've learned some things from this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next time.
Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. you've landed refreshed and with extra hours to do what you want to do in a leisurely way.